the word that our Lord has for us today comes from Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 17 through 39. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I will have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults, for the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it's come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins. Thanks be to God for his word. Amen. Father, it's a privilege to pray for your word as it goes out. Thank you for the gift of preaching through Ryan. I pray that this would be a time of worship as we listen to your word. It's an opportunity to hear from heaven, not the words of men, not the thinking of the world, but a new thinking, a thinking that can reorder our minds. So bless us as a church through Ryan's word, your word through Ryan to us. Amen. We are in a series of messages through the book of Lamentations over the the Lenten season that we're celebrating together. You know, the book of Lamentations is a book that doesn't get too much press from Christians. And, And I think there's reason for that. It's because there's like one bright spot of hope in the entire five chapters and we just read it. And you're like, that was bright? Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of suffering, there's a lot of lamentation, there's a lot of darkness as we look at what has happened uh, because of God's judgment in the life of God's people. And we think it's important to go there because that too is part of our lives. And we won't have a category for what it means to suffer well, we won't have a category for what it looks like to endure and to seek God if we don't go there. And a little bit about the structure of the book, there's five poems that are there. And they're structured out, uh, the first, th- uh, first two are 22 verses, the fourth one is 22 verses, this one's 66, and they're all in, a, in an acrostic form of the Hebrew alphabet. And, and so uh, as the writer is writing, we, we think it's Jeremiah, we're not 100% certain, as he's grieving what's happened uh, in Judah with the destruction 
of a nation, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of everything that was any sign of God's presence in their life. As he's grieving, he has a structure to his grief. And that's important for us to have structure for our grief too. Because we all grieve, and most of us never stop to do it well. And so today we're going to lean into that a little bit more. Now, um, if you're in here and you're a Christian, you can probably remember a time in your life where you started following Jesus and all of a sudden your life got worse. Anybody? Yeah, exactly, right? That happens. You're sold this bill of goods. Your life will be great if you follow Jesus. And all of a sudden the unthinkable happens as you're following Jesus. Um, What we're looking at today is how difficult it is to follow Jesus and how much we need him uh, in our lives. So you might have been sold this bill of goods that taught you that, that life would get better when you followed Jesus, because that's true that it will, it just might not get better quickly. And we don't get to determine what better is. God does in eternity. And so as we look at that, the question that I'm inviting you to ask yourself this morning is this, what do you do when you find out that following Jesus is really, really hard? What do you do with that? Where do you find hope when your circumstances aren't any better? When you can't just gloss over something that's happened or some pain or depression or something like that that's going on deep in the recesses of your soul, where do you turn in those moments? Where do you find hope? Because there's so much power in hope. In fact, the writer of Hebrews will say in in Hebrews chapter 6 that hope is the anchor of the soul. It's the thing that anchors us in the midst of whatever life deals us, whatever we get ourselves into. Hope is the only thing that anchors us. So what is that hope and what does it do in our lives? I'm going to show a brief video clip that I just think is so powerful. And and years ago there was a series of movies that you may remember called The Hunger Games. The premise was was this, is that it it was, you know, it's future-oriented. It was once North America, but now the Pan Am maintains its hold of control with these 12 districts. And every year, they they have a representative from each of the districts that will go and and they will have to battle each other. Now, here's the catch. They're children. And so they, they, you know, they're, they're battling each other to the point where only one remains. And they talk about this whole strategy of hope. Sit down. Seneca, why do you think we have a winner? What do you mean? I mean, why do we have a winner? I mean, if we just wanted to intimidate the districts, why not round up 24 of them at random and execute them all at once? It'd be a lot faster. Hope. Hope? is the only thing stronger than fear. A little hope is effective. A lot of hope is dangerous. Spark is fine, as long as it's contained. So? So, contain it. I love that clip because he talks about hope being stronger than fear, but his whole weapon uh, he's the villain, that, that guy is, and his whole weapon is to keep hope low, just enough to keep people interested, but it can get out of control, he says, if you give people too much hope. Now, what we're going to discover today is the hope that God has given us is uncontrollable. 
It is absolutely more vast than our minds can comprehend. And so our big idea of what we're looking at today in Lamentations is this. Hope in the midst of, of despair is ours in Christ. Hope in the midst of despair is ours in Christ. Two points I want to make on this. Uh, the first one is this. Hope in the midst of despair comes from preaching to yourself, not listening to yourself. The second thing that we're going to look at is this. Is that hope in the midst of despair is a fight to remember the faithfulness of God. So let's dig in together. Lamentations 3, verses uh, 17 uh, through 21. Let me reread it to, to, to give you some context here. Judah's been destroyed. He can't make sense of what's going on in his own pain. He kind of breaks in in chapter 3. He's been personifying Judah. Uh, he's, been, he's been using all of these different images, but all of a sudden the grief is so strong, we see it in chapter 2, that he kind of breaks into the first person here. You see that in Lamentations 3.1. Where he says, you know, I'm the man that's seen affliction. And he goes on to say this in verse 17. My soul is bereft of peace. There's no peace to be found. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say, here's the self-talk here. My endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings. The wormwood and the, the gall. My soul continueth continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. So the grief is continuing, but you see a shift here. You see a shift. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So how does he go from saying, hope has perished, it's nowhere to be found, but then all of a sudden recalling hope? Now, what he's saying here is that without calling hope to mind, there was no hope for him. That there was an action on his behalf where he had to draw on something that was in him through God's word that, that his circumstances were not convincing him of. Now, uh, I talk to myself all the time. Anybody else talk to yourself? Anybody been caught talking to yourself recently? Yeah, I asked my kids on the way to church this morning. I said, I said do I talk to myself? And, and they said, yeah. And I said, when do I talk to myself? And they said, Usually when you break something or spill something. And, I was, and then I didn't ask what I said because so, I didn't want to know. But, um, uh, so the writer is in the same place here. He says, um, you know, he's, he's having this self-talk here. He says, my happiness is, is gone. So I say, and he goes on this litany of all of these thoughts that he's been having that are running through his mind. And, 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 and here's the thing, we're all in this constant conversation with ourselves. Whether it's out loud or not, maybe it breaks out loud sometimes, but you've got this dialogue that you wake up with in the morning that is, that is circulating through your mind. It's rattling around in your heart, no matter who you are. Now the question is, who gets to break into that conversation? Who has priority in that conversation? And, and, and I'm convinced that our adversary loves to enter into that conversation when we're alone. He loves to use those thoughts that are in your mind to convince you of things that are not from God's Word. He, he, loves, he loves to make you see life from His point of view. He loves to pull you down. To, to Jeremiah, maybe he said something like this, the pain, the betrayal is who God is, Jeremiah. He doesn't keep 
his promises. Can't you see? He wiped you off the face of the planet, your people. He is not powerful. He will not come to your rescue. See, where is he now? If he really cared, he wouldn't let this happen to you, Jeremiah. Do you think you'll ever really get through this? Now, we could see it from Jeremiah's point of view and maybe speculate on what he's talking about, but you do the same thing. You have these moments where this self-talk just runs wild in your mind. And how do you put it into a category that is intelligible enough for the Holy Spirit to speak to you? What do we do in those moments when we're just fraught with despair? How do we handle it? I love what C.S. Lewis talks about when, when we find ourselves in a place where we can't find hope. He says this in Mere Christianity. Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. Now, I would propose to you that there are two ways to think about the next. We look forward and we think about eternity. We think about the things that God has promised us that are the, the realities that are uh, you know, not yet true in our lives. They're promised to us, but they're not yet fulfilled. So we look to those. So we look to Revelation 21 where he wipes away every tear and, and there's no more pain and there's no more suffering and there's no more darkness and, and everything is whole and we experience shalom. We look to that. But the writer in Lamentations also encourages us to look back. That you've got to call the faithfulness of God in history back in your life. And so we do that through God's Word, but we also do that through our experience. Remember the times when it seems so dark, but God proves still to be true and to be there. That those moments are ways that we call our mind to action, ways that we preach to ourselves. Now, this human experience that we all find ourselves in is, is um, full of pain. And, and if we find ourselves isolated in uh, this life, um, it will destroy any shed of hope. And that's why we get together. It's one of the reasons why we corporately worship together is because sometimes you're not just singing for yourself, you're singing for the person next to you who can't quite find the words in their heart. We gather together as little mirrors, as little images of Christ to one another that His Word is true and that He, he will fulfill every promise that He makes. But in Lamentations 3, we see this drastic shift from hopelessness to this shimmer of potential. From, from letting experience and self-talk guide our joy and our happiness to informing our minds by the Scriptures and the faithfulness of God in our story and in our past. He says, but this I call to mind. And because I've called it to mind, I have hope where I didn't have it before. And the word for call to mind in the Hebrew here literally means to return to. To, to return to truth. So I'm a, I'm a hopeless Christian this morning. Maybe, you, maybe that's you. You walked in here this morning and you think, you know, there's just really nothing good going in life right now. I'm not at the place I thought I would be. I'm not with the person I thought I would be with. I'm not experiencing the joy or fulfillment in the work that I do. Things aren't going well in my family. I don't have reason to hope today. And we're, we're so zoned in and, 
and what we've experienced. And, and God speaks to us through those. But there, there's seasons and times in our lives where we've got to call something to mind that is not readily available in our, in our, in our, in our window of sight. We can't, we can't really see it, so we've got to draw back on something that God put in us through his spirit. We've got to call something to mind because we can't quite see it in our experience. And it's a dashboard indicator for us that we need to make a U-turn. Whenever I make a U-turn in, in, in the truck when I'm driving down the road, my kids usually ask, hey, what did you forget? You know, are you, why are you going the wrong way? Why did you make a U-turn? And we make U-turns to get on the right path. That's why we make U-turns. And for us, when it comes to hope, if we find ourselves as hopeless Christians, we've got to make a U-turn. We've got to go back and call to mind what God has said. Now, I'm not saying that's going to be easy because it's certainly going to be a fight. But there's this embrace that we enter into, as Philippians 2 would call it, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a gift that's given to us, as Ephesians talks about, but it's also something we work hard for because of his grace. We work hard to call to our minds the truths of God when our experiences tell us something different. David was in this spot too in, in Psalm 42. It's very similar to what Jeremiah goes through in Lamentations 3. And, and, and David says this, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Why are you in knots, my soul, my heart, my emotions, my feelings? Why are you such a mess? Why can't I get it together? Maybe you ask yourself that question. Why can't I just get it together? And all of a sudden he starts, he shifts from talking to himself and he begins preaching to himself. He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He doesn't say I'm able to, to praise him in this moment that everything's good. If I could just remember that I have hope, then, then everything will be great in life. No, he says there's this battle where I've got to make myself hope in God when I can't find a hope on my own. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a, a medical doctor that became a pastor in London uh, years ago, the, uh, the early 1900s, mid-1900s, he, he says... Um, he says this about this idea of preaching to yourself versus talking to yourself. It's one of my favorite quotes. He says this, Have you realized that the, the most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking or preaching to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc., Someone is talking. Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self-talk uh, to, to own him, he starts talking, preaching to himself. And he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and he says, self, listen for, for a moment. I will speak to you. We see this all over the scriptures from those that have wrestled with God in incredible ways. People that would be worthy of imitation in our Christian walks. And the theme that we see over and over again is that people that follow God are not void of their own struggles and hopelessness and depressing thoughts and all of those things. 
But we see that there is a confidence in the hope of God that they have to draw to mind in the moments of darkness. And so, don't dismiss this idea of doubt or depression, um, whether you're walking through it right now, whether you have walked through it, or whether you know someone that struggles with it. Lloyd-Jones was a medical doctor. He understood depression clinically. He understood that it was a reality, a real thing. But there's something that you can do even if you find yourself in those places. You can call to mind the hope that you have in eternity and the faithfulness that you've seen of God in history. And those are the things that we've got to do in those moments. So, so as we turn to the second point here, where do you turn when all seems lost? What is your strategy whenever you find yourself in these hopeless situations? Because we're not promised that we won't experience them, but we are promised that we can get through those and God will do something in the midst of those. I want to I challenge you to, to, to step into preaching to yourself instead of listening to yourself so much and what God might do through that. The se- second thing I want to look at is this, is that hope in the midst of despair is a fight to remember God's faithfulness. It's a fight, and it's, it's a battle. It involves our effort. Listen, listen to the shift that Jeremiah brings in Lamentations 3. He says, but this I call to mind, I return to, and I have hope because I recall this. I turn back to this. That the steadfast love, the covenant-keeping has said love of God, it never ceases. It never goes away. It's never gone for us. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He just breaks in and has to get it out. You know that song, Great is Thy Faithfulness? Where do you think it came from? Right here. It just breaks into his heart. Great is your faithfulness, God. You've always been there. Even when I experience the suffering of my sin or suffering from sin in the world, you're always there. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that you should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And he's saying, don't jump to conclusions about the Lord. You should wait patiently when you're going through whatever you're going through. Because he's faithful. It is good that we should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence. What's he talking about here? To, to, to bear the yoke in his youth. It means that this man will, will suffer the consequences of his sin. But the suffering at some point will pass. There's a reason why he talks about his youth. That even in the darkest suffering. Maybe there was a generation that couldn't see the light because of what had happened in Judah. In the darkest suffering, and we've said this is, this is probably top three worst moments in the history of God's people. The fall and the crucifixion were probably the only other things that could rank up there with it. And the crucifixion actually turned out pretty good, right? So this is a dark moment. This is a dark moment, and, and, he, and he's saying, listen, this is going to pass When you remember God's faithfulness, no matter how dark it seems, no matter how lonesome it feels, the promise is that it will pass. That it will not define you for the rest of your life. Whatever you did last year, or in your 20s, or whatever happened in your family, 
that God has grace and mercy, not to avoid that, but through that. That he will prove, just as he has time and time again in history, that he's faithful. That he's faithful. He's so faithful. When it's laid on him, let him put his mouth in the dust that there may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. Are you seeing some images of maybe Isaiah 53 here where Jesus, it's a, it's a prophecy about what will happen to Jesus. And then Jesus then endures this. He gives us an image of Christ who will come and experience all these things on our behalf. He says, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, and he will cause grief in your life. And you don't have to doubt, does he care about me? Does he love me? He'll cause grief and you'll doubt all of those things. Because that's what it feels like to be human. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion. Not because you're so great and you're knocking it out of the park with your obedience, but he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. His love for you will convince himself to have compassion on you. It's the whole reason why God can pour out his wrath on a nation, pour on his wrath against unbelievers, yet send himself to save you. It's the picture of the gospel. We deserve the worst things imaginable because of the consequences that our sin have earned us. But Jesus fulfills all of those things, and it's God himself, for God so loved the world that he sent, that he gave his son. That, that's the truths of the gospel. This is what Jesus has come to. This is what God has promised for us. This is how he fulfilled, how he's made a way, how he's shown us compassion. Because he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of man. Think about that. God's first thought in my life and in your life is, as you may see us as sinners that deserve wrath if we're not in Christ, his first thought, the way that I interpret the scripture, is not to punish or discipline us in sin. He doesn't afflict from his heart. It's not that he's just up in heaven looking at you, just waiting for you to blow it so he can just lay it on you. He doesn't afflict from his heart, the scriptures say. That his preference in our lives is this, is that his kindness, his compassion, his steadfast love would lead us to repentance, as Romans 2.4 says. That as we see the consequences of sin, as we feel them to some degree, that that would, that would change us. That the Holy Spirit would use those things to change us, to turn us back to God, to remember His faithfulness in our lives. He is so committed to His promise to us that He will take necessary measures to bring us to repentance. And this is why we can look at what the writer of Hebrews says that, that God disciplines those that he loves with faith. We can really believe that because he wants to bring us back to a place of repentance. The fight for us, therefore, is to remember. Hope is about remembering and looking forward to God's promises being fulfilled. How many times does God remind us of who he is and what he's done? Have you ever noticed how many times the word remember is in the Bible? And yet we beat ourselves up so many times because we're like, I already know that, but we don't live it out, right? How many times have you done that? Maybe this week? You said, 
I know that, I know that, I know that. Yeah, but I'm not living that. Why can't I just remember it? It's because we've got to keep coming back to Jesus. We've got to keep coming back to him. Consider the preface to the Ten Commandments. Here's what God tells Moses before he has him write them down on the tablets. He says this, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why do you think that's the preface to the Ten Commandments? I want you to remember when you blew it, when you guys were slaves in Egypt, that I didn't forget you there. I didn't leave you there. I was faithful there. And so you can, you can trust that when you can't keep what I'm about to lay out before you, and you're not going to be able to keep it, that I might be faithful then too, that it might not, you might still be able to find my steadfast love and my compassion, even though you're not able to keep what I'm about to lay down before you and show you the character of myself. Over and over and over again in God's Word, Paul writes about this a lot, and he talks about fighting the good fight of the faith. The fight for us, church, is a fight to remember and embrace the promises of God. And these painful experiences in our life, these sufferings, these consequences that we feel, what we're reading about in Lamentations, they actually serve an irreplaceable purpose for you becoming more like Jesus. So to say it another way, you can't become like Jesus unless you suffer. If you've got a Bible, flip over to Romans 5. We're going to look at this quickly. Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Paul's writing about the purpose of suffering and the hope of joy in the midst of suffering. Here's what he says. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, so he's talking to Christians, people that don't follow Jesus are not yet justified by faith. The wrath of God still sits on their lives. But because we've been justified by faith, he says, you need to listen to what I've got to say. So if you're a Christian, you need to really hear this today. And if you're not a Christian, you need to really see what God could be doing in your life. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We might not have peace in the world. We might have peace in the home. But we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no longer any animosity. There's no longer any punishment for sin because we've been justified. He says, through him, we also have obtained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we've got access now to God by faith, and we have hope, the hope of the glory of God, meaning that the weightiness of God will one day be the weightiness of our hearts and our stories. Not just something to aspire to for God to have that place in your life, but you, bearing the image of Jesus, you will have glory. You were created for glory. You were created for worth. That's what the book of Colossians teaches us about. But not only that, so we rejoice in the hope of glory, but we rejoice also in our sufferings, he says. And here's why we can rejoice in suffering. Here's why we should rejoice in suffering, he says. Because suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. So suffering, church, 
leads you as a Christian. Suffering leads you to endure beyond what you think is possible. You think, I can't get through this. That's when you know you're suffering. When you hit a moment, you're like, I can't go on. You can trust in those moments that you're in good hands. Because you're in, a, you're in Romans 5 territory. It leads you to endure beyond what you think is possible. Because it is not you, but Christ in you that endures. And he goes on to say that endurance through suffering produces characteristics in our lives that cannot be forged in any other environment. There are things that God does in your suffering that cannot be done anywhere else in life. It's not a book that you can read. It's not a seminar that you can attend. It's not something that you can bolt onto your life, but it's something you experience as you, as someone who's filled with the Holy Spirit, endure through something that is happening that is incredibly painful. He forges and makes you into something that you could not get to on your own. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 that he now is beginning to see weakness as strength. Because in those moments where you're weak, in those categories and spaces in your life where you can't endure, God is forging his strength on your behalf. He's making you into something altogether different. And he says that the Spirit's filling leads us into and through suffering. He says this produces hope. So we want hope without the suffering. But suffering is what produces the hope. So we wonder why we live hopelessly sometimes, and it's because we're not seeing God's hand through the suffering. We're not seeing God's hand as he helps us endure. We're not seeing God's hand as he's building character within our souls. And this hope does something that we all long for. This hope that we have, which is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, poured into our hearts by faith, this hope doesn't put us to shame. That's our greatest fear as a people. That at the end of our lives, that we'll still be filled with shame. That we'll still be filled with death. That we'll still not see God for who He is. That we'll still not experience life. That we'll not have joy. That we'll not be satisfied with Jesus. He says this hope doesn't put us to shame. And as we think about this, and we see that there's no way to avoid suffering, and it's because God cares so much about you that He wants to make you into the image of Jesus. We find fellowship in suffering as Jesus endured everything that we've endured times 10. And so practically speaking, I just want to give you a, a few things on how to fight. On how to fight for God's grace and for the hope that is yours in the midst of suffering. When despair wants to be the dominant narrative, how do you find hope? We're going to look back at a passage that we've looked at a couple times in this series in Matthew 26. And it's when Jesus is getting ready to be crucified. So if you've got a Bible, flip over, and I'm just gonna, we're just going to pick up on some things that I think are prescriptive for us as we suffer. Verses 36 through 39, I'll, I'll read it and we'll just draw out three quick principles uh, that you can apply as you fight the good fight of the faith yourself. Scriptures say this, then Jesus went with them, his disciples, after the, they were in the upper room, um, to a place called Gethsemane. Now, it was his favorite place to pray just outside of the city gates behind the temple across the Kidron Valley. And, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So he's got his guys with him, but he wants to go over here and pray. But he decides to take a few people with him. He's not just praying by himself. So he takes Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, who were James and John, kind of the inner three of his fellowship. 
And he began to fall apart with them. He began to be sorrowful and, and troubled. And he, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And, and remain here with me. Just stay with me. Just, just be beside me if you don't mind. I can't handle it. And watch with me. And going a little further, he, he's just absolutely falling apart. He says, on his face, he falls on his face and he says, my father, my father, you sent me here, right? If it's possible, let this cup, let it pass from me. Let's go and let's, let's do something else, God. Let's, let's father, let's, let's go another route. There's got to be another angle on this. You're God, come on. We see his humanity on full display here. And, and he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So just three quick things that we see from this that I think will help us given what we've talked about today. How do we fight? We fight in community with others. So Jesus invites his disciples to share the deepest sorrow that he's ever experienced in his life. Um, he didn't say, I got this. You guys go take it easy. Uh, sit out under those beautiful trees in the garden and just hang out. I, I got this. I'm Jesus. But he lets them in. He lets them in. And they're not helpful to him in those moments because they have so little faith about what's going to happen next. But he lets them in. And he, and he asks them to enter in with him. And he becomes undone and sorrowful and troubled. And he needed his father and his friends in those moments. His, his friends served a purpose in his life. In those isolating moments of torment and sorrow that you experience, your friends too can serve a purpose in your life. Even Job, Job's turning to his friends and they're giving him terrible advice, right? Are we humble enough to fight for hope with other people? Are you, are you humble enough to let somebody else into your suffering, to let someone else in to the depression that is gripping your soul, to let someone else into the hurt and the sorrow, or are you just trying to shoulder it alone? How do you expect to find hope if you're doing that? Why are you discouraged today? How are you hopeless? Does anyone know? What's the benefit of shouldering it alone? The first thing we do is we fight by getting in community with others. I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe it's one of the groups we've got here at church, or maybe it's with a coworker or, or with a family member. Or, or I don't know what it looks like, but I know that isolation is the enemy's playground. It's just what he does. He loves to play there and he loves to keep you there. Secondly, with a melted heart toward God and others. So Jesus is sorrowful and he's kind of negotiating with God. He's like, God, if there's another way, let's just do that. And he's in tears and his emotions are overcoming him. But he's also letting his guys know that he's troubled. So this is similar to the idea of community that I just talked about. But it takes it a step further to say... When is the last time that you just let yourself be in the context of your relationship with God in prayer? Like we see in the Lamentations how dark the prayers are sometimes. Jeremiah was just where he was. He couldn't be anywhere else. To be anywhere else would be a lie. Do you have a group of people that you can do that with? Those are what friends are. And, and, and now in, in this day and age, with the advancement in technology and social media, we're the most lonely people on the face of the planet for all of history. We've never been more lonely than we are now. 
yet we have this appearance of connectedness. Do you have life-on-life friends that you can be undone with? Lastly, to ultimately rest in your Father's care. What do we see Jesus do? He says, let this cup pass, but not my will, but yours. At the end of the day, we fight the enemy best from the deceit that he attempts to bring, in, bring into our hearts and convince us of by resting in our Father's care. What you see in the book of Lamentations is he says, hey, just wait it out. Wait on the salvation of the Lord. I know you want it quicker, but he's up to something. Because the promise is louder than the doubt, and therefore the hope is more convincing than the despair. To rest in your Father's care in this season of your life looks like contending with him like Jeremiah did in Lamentations or what David did in Psalm 42 as he wrestled and he preached to himself. We contend with that kind of strength, but at the end of the day, we rest. We stop the fight. We rest. There's a reason we're talking to my kids last night over dinner and we were talking about the first five commandments of the Ten Commandments and you know, we get to number four, and it's talking about the Sabbath, and we're unpacking that. Look, what's it mean to rest? Why do you think God tells us to rest? Do you think he rested because he was tired? I don't think so. He rested because he wanted to set a pattern for creation. And I'm not talking about just an absence of work. I'm talking about just a, just a fortitude and a strength that's aimed at worship. Your soul needs to worship for a day. Because you'll never rest if you don't. That's how you cling to hope is you rest in the Father's care. Claire Booth Luce once says this, there are no hopeless situations. There are only people who have grown hopeless about them. Church, my prayer for you today is that your hope in God would be so strong even through your painful experience that you would see that every, oppor- every situation, every circumstance is an opportunity to be forged more deeply into hope. Let's pray together. Father, um, we're thankful that we get to see you uh, in these moments of, of what can appear to be hopelessness. And I know a lot of times we experience those individualistically. We have these losses and these things that cause grief and pain in our lives. And we, we want to shoulder those alone because we think, oh, I don't want to bother anyone. Lord, I pray that, that, that we would be an authentic people that doesn't just share the highlight reel of our lives to others, but we learn to grieve together so that we can experience hope together. I'm thankful that you forge hope through suffering as we cling to the promises of God. I know that there are some in here today that are in that season. They're in the ditch. They're in the darkness right now. But I pray that this morning would crack open a door of hope into their hearts as they call to mind the things of God, the promises of God that are future-oriented and that are not yet fulfilled, but also the faithfulness of God in the past. Would you do that work in us this morning? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.